Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Welcome to the Bread of the Word podcast, a podcast striving to feast on God's Word and let the Bible speak to us all. Let us, as a former generation said, go ad fontes to the fountain and be nourished and sustained by all that God is. Let's dig in together. Hello and welcome back to the Bread of the Word podcast, um, a podcast dedicated to going ad fontes to the fountain and being nourished and sustained by all that God is. Now we've been working through the book of Ecclesiastes, but this week we will actually be taking a brief pause from Ecclesiastes and going to the book of Psalms. Um, every now and then I um, will take a break from the weekly exposition and just work through a psalm. And this week we will be in Psalm chapter 90 and see what God reveals to us through this wonderful prayer. In the age of industrialism, of ever looking forwards to the new, Scripture time and time again implores us to look back. Jeremiah 6 says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the way, and see, and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. Job 12.12, 12, With the ancient is wisdom, and, and in length of days understanding. And likewise, Psalm 90 is a, is a chapter that implores us to look back. If for no other reason than because it is attributed to Moses. The opening line, A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Psalm 90 is a song that leads us to do just that. It is traditionally attributed to Moses, which makes it the oldest psalm in the entire book. Um, there, there were other psalms, but in this thing we call the Book of Psalms, this collection of songs of praise, of prayerful meditations, um, this is the oldest because it is written by Moses. And so let us read the text of this psalm. And then we will go verse by verse, breaking it apart and seeing what God shows us in this wonderful, wonderful chapter. This is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation, before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world. From eternity to eternity, you are God. You return mankind to the dust, saying, Return, descendants of Adam. For in your sight a thousand years are like yesterday that passes by, like a few hours of the night. You end their lives, they sleep, they are like grass that grows in the morning. In the morning it sprouts and grows, by evening it withers and dries up. For we are consumed by your anger, we were terrified by your wrath. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days ebb away under your wrath. We end our years like a sigh. Our lives last 70 years, or if we are strong, 80 years. 
even the best of them are struggle and sorrow. Indeed, they pass quickly, and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger? Your wrath matches the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days carefully, so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Lord, how long? Turn and have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love, so that we may shout with joy and be glad all our days. Make us rejoice for as many days as you have humbled us, for as many years as we have seen adversity. Let your work be seen by your servants, and your splendor by your children. Let the favor of our Lord, our uh, the Lord our God, be on us. Establish for us the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. <clears throat> so, just looking at the the subscript that this little heading, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. It literally says, um, when we look at that in the Greek Septuagint, it literally could be translated to a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And it's important to note that the profundity of this psalm cannot be constrained solely to its human author. This is not in the book of Psalms because it was solely because it was written by Moses. The significance of the psalm is attributed to the God who wrote it in the same way that David was not special because he was David. That the psalms of David are not in there because David wrote them, but God was pleased to pen these songs through the vessel David. While David was wildly imperfect, Moses was as well. These are weak men that God was pleased to use for his glory. And so we've got to keep that in mind as we look at Psalm 90. That we're not looking at Moses as the, the Superman of Scripture. We are looking at God who worked through Moses, who revealed himself through Moses. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has given to us, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. So, big picture is the coming Messiah, is the, the promised Christ, the promised Redeemer. And Moses is affirmed in the New Testament as a, a, a type, that is a foreshadowing of who Christ would be and what he would do. We'll dig into that a bit more as we go, but with this right ordering in mind, that Psalm 90 is ultimately about Christ. It draws us near to Christ, not Moses. Let us dive in. Verse 1. <clears throat> Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world. From eternity to eternity, you are God. Who is this God to whom Moses plied to? The God who was his refuge. The God who gave birth to the world, it says. The God who, the one who is El. From eternity to eternity, you are El. You are God. Proverbs 18.10 says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and are saved. Moses was aware, as James Montgomery of Boyce puts it, probably more than us, that life is uncertain at best. 
there is no permanence to be found in it. Nevertheless, he was also profoundly aware of God's existence, and he knew that God is the one foundation for everything. Therefore, the person who is anchored in him is eternally secure. Moses starts this song. We don't know when exactly Moses wrote it. We don't know where that this is in his biographical history. But he opens this psalm by remembering the faithfulness of God, by remembering the preeminence of God, by remembering the that God existed before him and will be around long after him. You has been our dwelling place in all generations. And the Hebrew word for that we render as dwelling place is unique because it can also be rendered as refuge. And I think that's probably a stronger word to use is refuge. Because when we use the word refuge, what comes to mind is hiding, is seeking a place of safety in the midst of adversity. We, co we come back to um, words like refugee, which we've seen a lot in the news here in America about refugees in the last few years. And at the end of the day, God is our refuge. Psalm 46 says he is our refuge and strength. That he is our hiding place, but he is also the means by which we go forth. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. From age to age, God can be trusted. The sovereign Lord holds and upholds the world. John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they know me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. He is eternal. But we are finite created beings. God's always been. And yet God has been gracious to preserve for himself a people. To take for himself a people and to hold them in his righteous right hand. Not because of our own virtue, not because of our own deservingness, but because of his, his mercy, because of his love and his, his graciousness. Because the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Just the word of our God remains forever. So if the word of God endures forever, what does that say about the person of God? Because I assure you that if the word of God is endureth forever, the same can be said about the person from whom the words came. We are not on the same bandwidth as the God who made the universe. And Moses is anchoring his prayer in the reality that he is not God, that he is not like God. He is, God is not bound to his existence, but Moses is bound to God. Moses, apart from God, can do nothing. And apart from God, Moses dies. Verse 3, you return mankind to the dust, saying, Return, descendants of Adam. For in your sight a thousand years are like yesterday that passes by, like a few hours of the night. You end their lives and they sleep. They are like grass that grows in the morning. In the morning it sprouts and grows. By evening it withers and dries up. We have been in Ecclesiastes for quite some time. We've been in Ecclesiastes, since, I think, since June. And one theme that we've seen time and time again, is 
this concept of man's impermanence. Um, Ecclesiastes 1.4. One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh. But the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to this place where he arose. Psalm 90, verse 3 says, You return mankind to the dust, saying, Return, descendants of Adam. And the word Adam in Hebrew, Ha-Adam, the one from the dirt. That's, that's important because God himself said, From dust you came, and to dust you will return. You return mankind to the dust. He's using Genesis language here because Moses... Um, is very familiar with the Genesis account. God revealed the origins of his people through Moses. And this is something he likely would have been very familiar with, um, given that this is how the Israelites knew God in the written word. They didn't have John 3.16. They didn't have 1 Kings. They didn't have the book of Psalms. They didn't have all this to ponder and meditate on. They had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. For a long time, that was the scripture they had in the time of Moses. So Genesis would have been something that Moses and his contemporaries would have been very familiar with. And so he used this idea of dust. And that is, that is our legacy. Dust. Ashes. Echoes. Psalm 119, verse 25 says, My soul cleaveth unto the dust. <clears throat> Quicken thou me according to thy word. How can our life be anything but dust? That, that is the question. And I found John Owen's comments in his book, Searching Our Hearts in Difficult Times, to be very helpful. How can our life be anything but dust? How does our life have meaning? And he writes, I think that the direction given by our Savior himself is so plain and so fitted to our experience that we, don't need to, we do not need to look much further. After all, he says, As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. John 15, 4. What we aim for is fruit-bearing, which consists just as much in the internal vigorous actions of grace as in the outward performances of duties, to be faithful in our minds and souls as well as in our lives. The way to do that, says the Savior, is to abide in me. And he tells us plainly that unless we do whatever else we do, we cannot bear fruit. So then the whole of our fruitfulness depends on our abiding in Christ. This is the remedy for what is broken. This is the relief that our soul needs. Christ alone. Moses was justified looking ahead to the promise of a Redeemer. And we now have full access to the fruit of that promise. If we go to Hebrews chapter 11, we see some of this. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about the generations of the people of God that came before the audience of this book. It says in verse 1, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what, of what is not seen. 
for by it our ancestors won God's approval. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. And if we go down to verse 23, it says, By faith Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they did not fear the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and chose to suffer with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since he was looking ahead to the reward. And that reward was the redemptive work of the Messiah. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the king's anger, for Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. By faith, he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after being marched around by the Israelites for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and did not perish with those who disobeyed. And he goes on through the rest of this chapter, evidencing the, the, these Old Testament stories, as we call them. That these are the seeds of faith. That there wasn't a separate faith for the Old Testament people and a different faith for the New Testament. But it is faith. It is all of faith. And while we have the fulfillment of the promise that they had faith in, that they looked ahead to the Messiah who was to come, but we look to the Christ who has already come, who is actively ruling and reigning at the right hand of the majesty on high, says Hebrews 1. Moses was justified. He found salvation for his soul, looking ahead to the promise of the Redeemer. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since he was looking ahead to the reward. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud. All passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that flowed that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And that the the um <clears throat> the the work of God around the Israelites in the time of Moses was not about Moses. But God used Moses to promise, to foreshadow what he was going to reveal to his people in Christ, through the person and work of Christ. However, many of the Jews did not believe, did not see through the symbols to what they were signs of, and instead focused on the rock, or the bread from heaven. They, um, Jesus talks about this in John chapter 8, about uh, the bread from heaven. Is that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you you will not be my disciple. And of course, he wasn't speaking about literal cannibalism or anything, but he's using the imagery of drinking from the rock, um, of the sprinkling of blood for 
the sacrifices of manna, bread from heaven, and saying, this is what I am. This is I am the fulfillment of those promises. This is prophecy unfolding before your eyes, says Christ, abridged. And so the Jews looked ahead in faith to the coming Messiah that would make the world right, to the coming Lamb who taketh away the sins of the world. And we, this side of Calvary, have the full benefits of that promise coming to fruition. Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, in the same way that Moses was justified by faith in the coming Christ, we are justified by faith in the Christ who has come. And we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Again, I, I re reiterate Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by this, our ancestors were approved. <clears throat> Going down to verse 39. All these were approved through their faith. So this list of people he goes through in chapter 11. I don't have time to go through the entire chapter. But Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Gideon, David, Samuel. All these people. He says all these were approved through their faith. But they did not, perceive, they did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us. That is the New Testament believer so that they would not be made perfect without us. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is where God takes the stories of Moses. That God's work with Moses was not just about Moses. It wasn't just about Israel as a political entity, about establishing a Israel as a nation in 1945. It wasn't about that. It was about God reserving for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation a people for his glory, for his praise, for his fellowship. That he endured the cross, despising its shame. He atoned for sin for all of God's elect. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He demonstrated his authority over the fullness of the world and this whole system by which we see the world the things like death and destruction these are things that are bound to Christ the conquering king and now he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high having secured having purchased a people not just the Jews or the Gentiles but from every tribe tongue and nation in that kingdom that has that he promised he said he would come back and that kingdom that promise is being fulfilled little by little every day as we are rapidly approaching the coming day when the Lamb taketh away the sins of the world, 
when there will be no more death, no more crying, no more sorrow. When God dwells with his people, and forever we will rest. Because that's what the promised land was, was rest. It was worship and rest. Hebrews 4 says, we who believe in Jesus enter into that rest that the Jews did not. They didn't enter into the promised land for so long because of sin. They did not enter into that promised rest. But we who believe in Christ enter into a spiritual rest that was embodied in the promise of the land. Then, then Psalm 90 takes a turn. And so we've talked about the multi-generational thing that God is working despite the fact that Adam is temporary. God is working in his providence for something glorious. And then we get to verse 7. For we are consumed by your anger, and we are terrified by your wrath. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all of our days ebb away under your wrath. We end our years like a sigh. What? So now we've got a change in tempo. Wrath? Anger? Iniquity? What just happened? We had like this good thing going. We had this feel-good kind of prayer here. And, you know, I was about to do a dance here. And now we're talking about iniquity. What's going on, Moses? I think James Montgomery Boyce uh, shed some light on the tempo change here. This is the third section of Psalm 90, verse 7 through 12, recognizes that man's greatest problem is not just his frailty, that is, that he exists for only a short bit of time, and is then no more. It is that he is also a sinner, and is subject to the just wrath of God. In fact, it is sin that is the cause of his death and misery. Moses ties the themes of death and sin together, for they are together. We are consumed by your anger, and we are terrified by your wrath. You have set our, iniqui our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days ebb away under your wrath. We end our years like a sigh. Genesis 3, going back to the curse on Adam. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow, until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people, because all sinned. And so through the sins of Adam, Ha-Adam, the one from the dirt. Not only did sin spread to all of his descendants, but the death that, that accompanies that sin. So sin spread to all people, and death through sin. You, can't different, you cannot separate death from sin, because sin is death, and death is sin. We're talking about the death of something. We're talking about the utter defacement of what God has called good, of what God made to be good. We're talking about a great defacement on the image of God. We were made in his image. God made man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. 
And that is not just we look like God, but that is we have a we were made to enter into a beautiful relationship with God that was not like the animals, that was not like the plants. But God entered into a special relationship with Adam and with his wife. And we call that a covenant. That is a, a hard contract. This is a big deal. And part of that covenant is the fact that Adam could know God as he was. But sin broke that relationship because now we have a holy God and an unholy man. Now we have, new, now we have two beings that cannot have fellowship because what fellowship has light with darkness? And so Adam was not, no longer able to keep said covenant. That relationship was not something he could reap the benefits of because he hid. Because in his sin and in his nakedness, he hid. Because a holy God cannot be in the presence of our filth. <clears throat> and a recognition of our impermanence, of our own untimely deaths, of memento mori, leads straight into acknowledgement of our sinfulness. Sin brought death, and death through sin. It leads us to cry out as David did, Have mercy on me. Wash me. Purge me. Cleanse me. Psalm 51, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be made clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. And in that verse, in that entire psalm, David cries out for the incense, for the oils that accompany a sacrifice, but he does not ask for the blood. And that the blood that was shed to cleanse us of sin, to make us whiter than snow, to bring joy and gladness, to make the bones that God's wrath has broken rejoice, that blood was shed on a cross. By Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. The Word of God made flesh dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of, not of blood, nor of, the, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of the will of God. And that makes all the difference. Psalm 90, verse 10. Our lives last 70 years. Or if we are strong, 80 years. Even the best of them are struggle and sorrow. Indeed, they pass quickly, and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger? Your wrath matches the fear that is due you. God is not to be trifled with. Yahweh is not a trivial God. The God who made the world and everything in it is to be taken seriously. And sometimes that means fear. Sometimes that is being mournful over our own blood guiltiness, of our own unworthiness. But taking him seriously also means considering what distance he traveled to get to me. The distance he traveled 
to condescend from the heights of heaven to death on a cross. And the gravity of what is offered by Christ to you and to me. John 8, 21. And Jesus said to them again, I'm going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And so the Jews said again, he won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. You are from below, he told them. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, that I am the son of man, you will die in your sins. And Christ promised the sack of Jerusalem in 70 AD as part of a demonstration of God's wrath against sin. The Jews rejected the Messiah. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He did not fit in their understanding of the Mosaic Law, because Christ was the essence of what the law was. That he is everything the law pointed to. And they missed the forest for the trees. When judgment came, the temple was lost. Many Jews had thought salvation was then lost as well because they were so focused on the temple they weren't looking to the messiah who was to come so god took the temple but salvation is through christ not the temple or any sacrifice hebrews chapter 12 says for you've not come to what may touch me touch for you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches this mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. When we come to Christ, we are not simply going to a new temple. He's not nearly a new symbol or a new way to be saved. He's not a new road, a new path, fill in the blank. There's not a second plan of salvation after Malachi. You don't have an Old Testament way to be saved and a New Testament way to be saved. It has always been grace through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God has always been revealed through the person of Christ. So when we come to Christ for grace... It's not a new temple. It's not, some, it's not a new way to be saved. It's the fulfillment of what those Old Testament symbols pointed to. When we seek redemption, the end point is always Christ. The believing Jews of the Old Testament placed their faith not in the blood of goats to save them, but in the coming Messiah, the one whom the sacrifices and the feasts and the temple itself pointed to. Deuteronomy chapter 18 says, The Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet like me, says Moses, from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. This is what you requested from the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not continue to hear the voice of the Lord our God. 
or see this great fire any longer, so that we will not die. <clears throat> Luke 24 says, Jesus told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. <clears throat> Christ is the true and better Moses. Just as Moses stretched out his hands and parted the sea, and the Israelites walked through on dry land, according to the providence of God, Jesus Christ stretched out his hands, as though to say, let my people go. And he, was, and he delivered his people, not from Egypt, not from the oppression of any king, but from sin. So what should this information lead us to do? What impact should this have on us? Verse 12, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. The King James puts it this way, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. We number our days. Memento mori, rem memento vitae. Remember you must die. Remember you must live. By recognizing our impermanence in juxtaposition with the permanence of God, we are inclined to seek wisdom with a capital W. And that wisdom is Christ. Colossians 1 says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That in him all things were created by him and for him. In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He, all things are his. So as Augustine said, if wisdom is to be found, regardless of its source, it is from Christ. So let us number our days. Let us recognize that we do not have infinite days on this earth. That one day we will stand before God for judgment. That one day we will die. And let us use that not to have a, a doomsday clock sitting on our desk of, oh, I've got one less day to live now, but to live every day for the glory of God. Solus Christus, solus vitae, all of Christ for all of life. And as Moses draws to a close here, Lord, how long? Turn and have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love, with your hesed, so that we may shout with joy and be glad all our days. So he says, teach us, Lord, to number our days. Two verses later, that we may shout with joy and be glad all our days. For as many years as we have seen adversity... Make us rejoice for as many days as you have humbled us, for as many years as we have seen adversity. Moses concludes his prayer with a petition for God's continued mercy and grace to be shown in his life and in the lives of those around him. Moses was desperately dependent on the hesed, on the covenant faithfulness of God. We are too.
<clears throat> Let your work be seen by your servants, and your splendor by their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be on us. Establish for us the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. And the work of, our, of their hands, the work that God had set in motion. Ultimately, was ushering in the Messiah. Was ushering in Christ. Little by little, piece by piece. Not just through people like David, but people like Rahab. People like Nebuchadnezzar. That God is exercising his sovereignty over pagan tyrants for his providential plan to usher forth the Redeemer. So for as many days as he has humbled us, and for as many years as we have seen adversity, let your work be seen by your servants, and, the, and your splendor by their children. Let this thing that you are doing go forth, and may our children be recipients of the benefits of what you are doing, God. Hebrews 12.12 12, Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. The path that God has us on does not promise ease. We're not promised a life of earthly prosperity. We're not promised an easy life. The Bible is very clear. You will suffer. You may not give your life for it, But things are going to be hard. <clears throat> you will suffer. This is why God calls weak men. This is why God calls people that cannot provide for themselves. Why God takes the foolishness of the world and confounds the wise. John Owen, in his commentary on Hebrews, wrote, In our Christian race, we are to put forth our utmost spiritual strength and activity. And he says spiritual strength, because our physical strength means nothing in this. From whence does that spiritual strength come, but from God? Just look at the preceding verses in Hebrews 12. Um, Hebrews continues to blow my mind. And I was captivated by this passage here, um, from verse 7 to 11. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, based on what seemed good to them. But he does it for our benefit. Why? So that we can share in his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the, beautiful, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. 
pursue peace with everyone, and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. We number our days. We apply ourselves to the wisdom of Christ, which is tested in the fires of discipline. He chasteneth every son that he receives. So let us submit to such chastening, knowing that it is God's vessel of producing discipline and wisdom in our hearts, that we might number our days and further yearn for his holiness in our lives, to bear fruit and to bear the family resemblance as the adopted sons of God. Growth is good. Growth hurts more often than not, but growth is for our good. Romans 8, and we know that God causes all things to work together for those that love God and are called according to his purposes for them. And in closing, consider the words of John Donne, poet from a uh, former generation. Take me to you, imprison me, for I accept you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste except you ravish me. Thank you for listening. This has been the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is a podcast ministry striving to feed people the wonderful words of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse, striving to let the word speak for itself. This ministry is also a member of the Truth and Love Network, a diverse fellowship of fellow podcasts of different theological backgrounds united in the gospel of God. For more from the Bread of the Word podcast or the Truth and Love Network, check out the links below and follow us on social media. Until next time, God bless, Matthew 4.4.